Good morning. It's my privilege to welcome you to Rivermont today to worship, and I invite you to turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 23. We're going to be looking at verses 44 through 56 together this morning as we continue our study of the Gospel of Luke. Last week we saw how Jesus was mocked and humiliated as he was nailed to the cross. And yet in the telling of what happened, the crucifixion only takes up three words in verse 33. They crucified him. The rest of the account is about the preparation for it, why it happened, how it changes things, and what is our appropriate response to the crucifixion. Today, we turn to the death and the burial of Jesus. And once again, it is an event filled with meaning that calls for a response from you and me. Luke 23, beginning in verse 44. Hear God's word. It was now about the sixth hour. And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light faded, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate. And asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud. And laid him in a tomb cut in stone. Where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation. And the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee. Followed and saw the tomb. And how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. And on the Sabbath day they rested. According to the commandment. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that by the power of your spirit, you would open our eyes to the wonderful things in this part of your word. We pray that you would open our hearts to see the beauty and the glory that comes to us through the crucifixion and death of our Lord Jesus. We ask that you would ignite our hearts with the gospel of grace today. We ask it in Jesus strong name. Amen. Well, it's Reformation Sunday, and it's the day that we celebrate the work of the Lord nearly 500 years ago to bring reform and health back into the church. The medieval church had, we could say, begun to lose its way a little bit and needed to be called back to what the Scriptures call us to be. And that is a people of grace alone, a people who rest in what Jesus has done upon the cross and in His resurrection for our salvation, not resting in our own goodness or our own merit. And in part, that call back to truth was done through a German monk named Martin Luther, whom you may know has come to be known through the years as God's volcano. And it was through this eruption of God's volcano of Luther that the Lord's power to save, his power to reconcile, his power to bring together all sorts of sinners was made clear and it was proclaimed once more. And yet God's Reformation eruption through Luther's ministry was relentlessly focused upon the cross 
in some minds a symbol of weakness. And yet it was the cross that brings us life. And so as we come to Reformation Sunday, we are brought to the story of the cross. It's important not only for Luther in the 1500s, but it's important for you and for me. As we study this death and burial of Jesus, let's think through it, thinking of the theology of the cross. What does the cross do for us as sinners saved by grace? First of all, we see in this text that the cross deals with our darkness. He deals with the darkness on the outside in the world and deals with the darkness in our hearts as well. Look at verse 44. We read that in the sixth hour, that's about noon, darkness descended upon Jerusalem. And it lasted until about the ninth hour, three in the afternoon. Well, what's the function of this darkness descending upon a city? Well, it was, it's more than simply dramatic effect. The darkness is a physical manifestation of the reality of evil, of the spiritual darkness that was descending upon the people. It was a physical manifestation of what Jesus proclaimed in chapter 22, verse 53, that the reign of darkness had come. It was its hour. You see, the devil thought in that moment that his victory was at hand. He had finally triumphed by putting to death the Son of God, but the devil hadn't triumphed. Because this falling of darkness had been told for hundreds of years in prophetic announcement. In Joel chapter 2, in Zephaniah chapter 1, and in Amos chapter 8 verse 9, it all points to darkness descending upon the people as the sign of the last days. In fact, Amos 8 9 says this, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will make that time like morning For an only son. It was in fact. The creation morning. For God's only son. The Lord Jesus. It was the day of judgment. As the prophets call it. It was the day when God comes down. To destroy and to put away evil. It's called the day of vengeance. And yet throughout the Old Testament. Whenever that day of judgment is described. It is most often accompanied by darkness. So what was happening here. In this darkness descending upon Jesus, descending upon Jerusalem that day. Well, what was happening was a prequel to the last judgment. This was the judgment day before the judgment day. And this judgment day was falling upon Jesus. It was through Jesus' work upon the cross that evil is destroyed. It was the day when the power of the devil had been broken and evil's day had finally come. And it was through Jesus and his work upon the cross that judgment came down upon him that you and I might live. You see, our judgment day fell that day upon the Lord Jesus so that you and I won't be judged guilty on the last day. Our sins are wiped away. And friends, that's what history hinges upon, that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that he was judged in our place. As 2 Corinthians 5 said, he became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Galatians 3 says Jesus was cursed for us. Our guilt was placed upon him, imputed to him. He underwent judgment day for my sake and your sake. The cross is a means of dealing with darkness and evil in the world and also darkness and evil within our own hearts. And Luther struggled with this idea throughout his early life. He wondered, how can we be assured of the forgiveness of sin? 
How can I be assured that my sin, my own darkness is taken away through what Jesus did on the cross? In the medieval scheme of Luther's day, any assurance came through feeling sufficiently contrite for sin. If I can make myself feel bad enough, then surely I can be forgiven. If I can judge myself harshly enough, then maybe I can work my way into this feeling of forgiveness. And in order to gain that forgiveness, I have to perform penance. I have to do good deeds to demonstrate just exactly how badly I feel about all that I've done. And yet, how does that work out for a sensitive soul? Someone who knows himself or knows herself well and knows the motives of our heart. How do you ever know if you feel sufficiently bad? How can we ever know if I'm contrite enough, if I've done enough to demonstrate my sorrow over my sin? Surely there's always more to be done to satisfy a holy and a perfect God. It's not only for Luther, but for you and me. There can be a degree of terror that comes along with wondering, have I done enough? Have I made myself feel badly enough for a holy God? How can I be sure? And in 1519, a full two years after Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Cathedral, it hit him. Forgiveness isn't determined by how contrite I feel. It isn't a factor of how badly I can make myself feel or how much good I can do to try to undo it. But instead, forgiveness comes by receiving the promise of God that Jesus was judged in my place. You see, a sinner's hope is not found in our actions. It's not found in our doing, but rather it's found outside of us completely. It's God's doing and it's God's making a promise and God keeping a promise that forgiveness comes through Jesus taking our darkness upon himself on the cross. It's a beautiful, beautiful message that Luther recovered for you and for me. That led him to write that the ears are the only organ of a Christian. It's an interesting statement, isn't it? The ears are the only organ of a Christian. Now, what could that possibly mean? It meant by that that we are assured of forgiveness not by doing enough good deeds, not by making ourselves feel badly enough to merit forgiveness, but instead we are assured of forgiveness by hearing and believing the Word of God and the promise of of salvation it is through our ears that we hear the promise and we believe that the lord jesus has done enough his sacrifice was sufficient for you and for me to deal with our sin it's really not any different for you and for me today i met with one of our covenant children this week to hear his profession of faith in the lord jesus and to welcome him to the lord's supper This little guy's story and his struggle over the past few months had mirrored Luther's and maybe yours and mine. He wondered, how do I know that I'm believing enough? How do I know if I feel badly enough, if I've truly repented? How do I know if I've done enough to make up for all the bad stuff that I've done to my brothers and sisters? How can I know? And then the Lord shone his light of grace into this young man's heart. That forgiveness comes through believing the promise that forgiveness was won upon the cross. That Jesus took our darkness. Jesus took our sin upon himself. And now we believe it and we are set free. 
It was that grace of God that shone in his heart that demonstrated that his own evil had been nailed to the cross. And in fact, evil in the world has been nailed to the cross so that it is put away. The back of the devil has been broken and righteousness will one day reign in perfection in us and through us. How about you? Do you believe that message that your darkness has been nailed to the cross, your sin, your shame has been nailed to the cross that you and I might be free. We trust in the Lord Jesus for Him to take our darkness into the grave where He was condemned in our place that we might be free. The cross deals with our darkness. Secondly, we see in this text that the cross brings us peace. As Pastor Brett said a moment ago from verse 45, there was a curtain in the temple and it was torn in two. In the temple of that day, there were a series of 13 curtains in the temple complex, but everyone knew that one of them was the most important. It was the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies, the the most holy place out from the rest of the temple complex. It was a a thick curtain. It was about an inch thick woven of wool from Babylon. It was dyed blue and white and red and purple. And there was a scene of a cherubim upon this curtain. It was big. It was 30 feet high and 30 feet wide. And it was so thick that it separated even sight. No one could see into the Holy of Holies. This curtain was so thick. It was a veil that said to sinful people, you can come this far but no closer. It was for the protection of sinners like us and the protection of God's own burning perfection, His own holiness. And the only person ever to go behind that curtain was the high priest once per year on the Day of Atonement. And as he went behind that curtain, he had to have the blood of a sacrifice before he approached the presence of a holy God. Sacrifice was necessary to deal with our sin. And yet now, as the curtain has been torn, ripped from top to bottom, as Matthew and Mark tell us, that curtain that kept people away from God's holy presence, it's torn in two. And it's a miraculous act that only God could do as He tore it from top to bottom. For any skeptics here this morning who wonder, is that just a a Bible guy inventing facts after the facts and then writing it into the story? Well, the Talmud, the record of the Jewish rabbis of the day, referenced strange events happening in the temple at the time of the crucifixion. It happened. The temple was torn, the, the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. But imagine what these priests must have been thinking. It was three in the afternoon. It was the time for them to prepare the evening sacrifices. And it was the Passover sacrifice nonetheless. And now as they come to the temple complex and have done their work, the curtain was ripping from top to bottom. They were able to look into the most holy place, the place where God's pure presence dwelled. I wonder what they expected. They knew that if anyone other than the high priest, saw what their eyes could now see, they would be immediately judged. They would be be immediately uh, die in his presence. I think if I were there, maybe I might have expected that scene from the Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, where the light comes out of the ark and everybody gets zapped, you know. But it didn't happen. It didn't happen that way. Why? What did it all mean? Why was the curtain ripped at exactly the time of the crucifixion? Well... The curtain was torn in the temple at that point because it's a picture. It's a picture that God is satisfied. 
the last sacrifice ever to be necessary has now been made. The sufficient and perfect blood that's required to remove sins has now been spilled. There are no more lambs, no more goats, no more blood on the mercy seat because the Son of God, the Lamb of God has been slain. And that wall that separates a sinful humanity from a holy God, that wall has now been ripped down as we are purified by the blood of the Lord Jesus. The Lamb has been slain to do this, as the words of Hebrews 9.26 say, once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. You see, there was no more need to separate God's holy presence from the people because there was a full and perfect and sufficient sacrifice for our sin that's been made. We have peace with God through the cross. The curtain has come down. The sacrifice has been made and we are welcomed into His sight. We are welcomed into the presence to draw near to our Creator. The writer of Hebrews Put it this way in chapter 10, beginning in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, he did it through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us now draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, And our bodies washed with pure water. The way to God is open. Because we've been washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. We may now approach the very presence of God. Have direct access to the throne of God Almighty. Because what had been a terrible righteousness. Now invites sinners like us into His presence. And He did it for me. He did it for you. He went to judgment. That you and I might have peace, a lasting peace, to be reconciled to our God. One of the major themes of Luther's prolific writing career was Christus pro me. That is Christ for me. Luther said it's never enough to know that Christ died. It's not even enough to know why Jesus died. A merely historical faith isn't the same thing as a saving faith. A saving faith lays hold of the death of the Lord Jesus for me. It's personal. He went to the cross in our place. He made peace for us. That curtain was torn for me. That you and I might be welcomed into His presence. The sin and the shame that keeps us away from a holy God has been removed. Jesus was slain for you. Jesus was slain for me. That we might have that peace that we so long for in this life. Where might you be looking for peace? Where might be you be looking for the place to deal with your own shame? Where might you be looking for a place where you no longer feel rejected? No longer feel cast out, but welcomed And accept it as you are. Where might that place be? Where are you looking for a place where the shame of the terror of being found out for what's really going on in your heart no longer holds sway over you? Where do you look for that kind of peace? It's only found in the cross. It's found through what Jesus has done for you and for me. Luther said, 
Jesus was given for me. Jesus was given for us. And we might add that Jesus was given for the world. Think about the the diversity of the different types of people who witnessed his death that day and how they responded. The cross brings together all kinds of people, brings to the foot of the cross all sorts of people from all kinds of backgrounds. You see first the centurion in verse 47. Centurion was a position of great responsibility in the Roman army. Most of them were career officers. They were battle-hardened, responsible, fierce men who commanded about a 100 soldiers apiece. They ensured discipline in the ranks. They issued the, the, the orders so that Caesar's will would be followed by the soldiers. And also, centurions were responsible to oversee executions. These were warriors and feared representatives of the crushing authority of Rome. And yet this battle-hardened representative of Caesar responded in faith to the death of Jesus. Luke uses this phrase, he uses in verses 46 and 47, that the centurion praised God. He uses that phrase six times. And each time it refers to someone recognizing God's power to save. The incredible power of God to transform sinners is how Luke uses that phrase. And so it's not the centurion that thinks, well, what a shame that we did this to that poor, nice man. How bad is that? No. Instead, the centurion began to grasp what Jesus was all about, that an innocent man was put to death for us and for him. Think about that for a moment. This man was responsible for what had just happened. We don't know if he was the one who struck the hammer blows to nail Jesus' hands and feet to the cross, but he certainly was in power. He was responsible. He oversaw the operation. He supervised it all. He added his voice to ridiculing the Lord Jesus. And yet this man's curses from just a moment before were now turned to praise. How incredible is the power of the Lord Jesus from the throne of the cross, ruling and reigning even over hard-hearted, battle-hardened men like this soldier. And it doesn't happen by accident. It doesn't occur because this soldier was smart enough to figure it out, to figure out what Jesus was doing. But instead, the Holy Spirit made this man's heart alive to be able to believe, just like he has to do for you And for me, he takes our hearts of enmity with God and he transforms them. He gives us new hearts to enable us to believe one of those who crucified Jesus, you understand, was one of the first to trust in the work of Jesus at the cross. What incredible power coming from Jesus, the one who supposedly was weak as he hung there upon the cross. He still ruled and reigned over hard-hearted people. You see, at the foot of the cross, enemies, even hard-hearted enemies, are transformed into followers and even friends of Jesus. He calls the hardened, he calls the powerful to bow their knee to worship him. And next to that soldier, there was a group of women. We read in verses 49 and 55, if you know your 
New Testament history, you will know that women were marginalized in that culture. They were excluded. They didn't count in the eyes of the authority. They were easily overlooked, didn't matter to anyone in authority. And yet it was this group of women who faithfully stayed with Jesus till the end. The disciples all abandoned him, Mark tells us in chapter 14. But these tender-hearted, easily overlooked women who were no account to any of those in authority, they were the ones who remained behind in devotion to their Savior. I'm not sure what they thought might happen. They didn't have the resources to offer Jesus a burial, but they simply knew that they loved him. They simply knew that they were devoted to this Jesus. You may be like these women today, someone who feels overlooked. You may be someone who feels like your life doesn't matter to anyone. You are of no consequence to anybody in this world. You're a nobody and easily overlooked. And yet Jesus draws you too. He draws you to stand side by side with the powerful, the hardened, side by side as beloved children of God. It's incredible that this powerful centurion took his place beside these women who were outcast. Side by side, all sinners in need of a gracious Savior. The cross is an incredible leveler of humanity. No matter who we are, we all come to the same place at the foot of the cross. And yet, what an interesting ally this centurion and these women found in Joseph, verse 50. Joseph was one of the ruling elite. He was part of the Sanhedrin He was those who held power in Jerusalem. He was wealthy. He was respectable. And John chapter 19 tells us that Joseph had already become a follower of Jesus. But he was afraid. He kept his following Jesus in secret for fear of the other Jews in authority. He didn't want to lose his place in society. Perhaps like some of us. Perhaps like Joseph, some of us are interested in keeping our faith a secret. Keeping it private. You don't want anyone to know that we might be like those evangelical Bible people. We don't want anyone to know that the truth about our hearts is, if you saw on the inside, I am a wicked and desperate sinner in need of a Savior. I'm not the person whom you think looks respectable on the outside. Perhaps, like Joseph, you or I might want to follow Jesus in secret so that we don't lose our reputation in the community. And yet this day, Joseph had a choice to make. He was a follower of Jesus, and he didn't consent to what the Sanhedrin had decided, verse 51 tells us. But how would he respond now? Now that the deed had been done. If you know your history, you may know that Romans usually left the bodies of crucified ones to rot on the cross. And yet Joseph, in an amazing public identification with Jesus went to Pilate to ask that his body be taken down. And not only did Joseph ask for the body, verse 53, but he himself took it down, Luke tells us. Joseph himself removed the nails from Jesus' hands and Jesus' feet. Joseph wrapped Jesus in a linen shroud. Joseph gave Jesus his own tomb, Matthew 27 tells us. 
What an incredible cost to Joseph. It very well may have cost him his career as a leader among the Jews. That he's now publicly identified with this criminal, with this madman Messiah, the Lord Jesus. It cost him his money. For he had to pay for this expensive linen shroud. It cost him his personal tomb. It also cost him his reputation to stand with Jesus in the shadow of the cross. I wonder whether we, as Joseph, are willing to stand with Jesus. It might be a lot simpler for us to keep our faith private. To keep our convictions to ourselves. To hope that no one ever sees the reality of my heart. That I'm not the respectable person that you see on the outside. And yet the Lord Jesus calls each of us to take our stand under the cross. Proclaiming that we are saved only by His grace alone, by His power alone, not by our power, not by our wealth, not by our reputation. None of that is sufficient to save you and me. It's only the blood of Jesus to save sinners like us. Responding to Jesus is incredibly leveling, isn't it? We have this hardened, powerful soldier, the centurion, standing right next to the outcast, right next to these easily overlooked women, standing next to a reputation-conscious, wealthy leader. Where else could we all be drawn together on equal footing like that? Being loved as sinners... And yet called to love one another in return. I wonder where that kind of thing is happening in Lynchburg. Where all sorts of people. The powerful. The wealthy. The outcasts. Stand and sit side by side. At the foot of the cross. I wonder where that happens. I pray that Rivermont. Looks more and more. Like the scene. At the foot of the cross on that day. That we would have more sinners of all sorts and all kinds and all types and all socioeconomic divisions all drawn together, all races brought together here. Kneeling at the cross as people who need the same grace because we have the same heart. Where else can we all be brought together except at the foot of the cross? Here we are on Reformation Day. Celebrating this cross that reconciles us to God and reconciles us to one another. So let's take our place under the cross where the Lord has done the work to remove our darkness. He has made peace for us with himself and with one another. And he's drawn us together side by side in his grace. Would you stand with the Lord Jesus today in the shadow of the cross? Let's pray. Father, we ask that on this Reformation Sunday, when we celebrate and we remember the gospel of grace, that it isn't our merit, it's not our doing, it's not our deeds, it's not our feelings of of, uh, feeling bad enough about our sin. It's not what we offer to you that brings us the gift of grace. But instead, it is your promise that's given to us that gives us assurance of eternal life with you. We pray, Jesus, that we as a church would more and more in our families, in our neighborhood, in this city, and indeed throughout the world, that your gospel of grace would be heralded through this church.
we pray more and more that this place would look like those who surrounded the cross on that Passover day. We pray that you would bring sinners of all sorts and all stripes coming together, kneeling, worshiping, being grateful for what you have done for us. We pray all this through the strong name of Jesus. Amen.